Okay, so we're going to start John chapter 9 tonight, which is the story about um, Jesus healing the man who was born blind. What I want to do uh, to start off with is I want to read the entire story because um, we've just been in a chapter that had uh, Jesus interacting uh having a, a debate essentially with uh, these religious leaders, okay? And so this chapter is different in that the entire chapter is really about this man and his interaction with the religious leaders. He encounters Jesus at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. And in the middle of the chapter, it's just him dealing with the fallout of his own miracle, right? So um, try to put yourself in his shoes. Consider that he was born blind. He had never seen a thing in his entire life until he encountered Jesus. Here's the story. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, he's already said this, right? He said that at the beginning of John uh, chapter eight. When he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes, that is to the man, the blind man's eyes, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means, or translated, sent. That's what the word Siloam means. So he left and washed and came back seeing. So the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, well, it is, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he's like him. The man himself kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who was called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 13. They brought the man who was previously blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied mud to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was dissension among them. So they said again to the man who was blind, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it about him that he had been blind and that he'd received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, that is the Jews questioned the parents saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he see? His parents then answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. 
Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They spoke abusively to him and said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we we don't even know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and yet yet you were teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that he had been, that uh, that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, "Do you believe in the Son of Man?" He answered by saying, "And who is he, sir, that I may believe him?" Jesus said, "You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you." And he said, "I believe, Lord," and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, "For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Those who were with him from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, "We are not blind too, are we?" Jesus said to them, "If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain we see, your sin remains." So we're not going to get uh, to these concluding remarks this week. Um, but right here at the end is the theme of the entire chapter, okay? Although Jesus is healing a man who was literally physically blind, it's about spiritual blindness. And when I preached on this in church, that was the direction that I took or the theme that I took. The Pharisees and these that are John constantly calls the Jews, which are essentially religious influencers and leaders from Judea, um, they were spiritually blind. They thought they saw, but as Jesus says here at the end, if you would admit that you were blind, I could heal you. But since you say we see the sin that blinds you, that's what he means, your sin remains, okay? So let's go back up to the beginning. Um, What I want to do is set the scene. Um, It says, as he was passing by. Well, we need to realize that there are no chapter or verse divisions in the original uh, text of Scripture, right? Those are added so we can find things. Uh, The chapter divisions were added, um, and then right when the printing press first came out, they added verse uh, versification. So that's why, although I believe that God superintends his word providentially, um, we don't look at the chapter and verse divisions as having any sort of inspiration, right? Um, But nonetheless, with that said, the last thing that happened at the end of chapter eight is they were about to stone Jesus 
for equating himself with God. So we're going to look back up at the last two verses to seg into this. This is 8, 58, and 59, okay? Those are the last two verses of chapter 8. Remember, we're in chapter 9, okay? Jesus said to them, and he's talking to these same religious leaders, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Remember, he's using the name of God in reference to himself. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They were going to stone him. That was the old way of the community publicly executing someone, which is sometimes practiced in the Middle East even to our day. Um, But Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. So it's kind of interesting to figure out exactly how he hid himself. This didn't, doesn't mean that there was something supernatural that happened. Um, in the Gospel of John movie, uh, the, his disciples are all around him. And as they pick up stones to stone him, the disciples kind of close in and Jesus sort of fades back. And I thought, you know, that's, a, that's possible. That's plausible. Um, you know, and then they can't find him anywhere. Um, so... Now we, we come over to chapter nine and it says, as he passed by. So what we're going to see is that they are not too far from the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam is actually outside uh, the, the temple, okay? Uh, or the temple grounds. The temple took up a, a large plot of ground. It wasn't just the, the original temple temple from Solomon's day. Um, They had built uh, these grounds that were all around the temple. It was this magnificent, uh, not only the temple itself, but these magnificent buildings all around. So as Jesus is leaving the temple and, you know, getting away from these people that are seeking to kill him, um, which, by the way, that's where he was speaking previously. Uh, he had been talking to them uh, in the temple, in the temple region. And uh, so now he's moving outside. He's moving outside the, the temple grounds and he encounters this man who is born blind. Okay. Well, let's go all the way back and think about why Jesus was in Jerusalem. That's not where he lived. That's not where his ministry started. Jesus was uh, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. His ministry began in Galilee, which is, if you remember, it's up north around the Sea of Galilee. Um, Well, it's not all around the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus' ministry was around the Sea of Galilee, primarily around the northern area of the Sea of Galilee. And Although Jesus has visited Jerusalem several times now, his ministry has really been concentrated in Galilee. Um, His brothers uh, were going to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a pilgrimage feast. That means that if you're close enough to go to Jerusalem to celebrate it, you should go to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Right, his brothers were headed there, and they said, "Well, why don't you go? You're wanting to become this, you know, teacher, this public figure. Uh, you can't hang back in these, you know, areas where there are not a lot of people if you want to be known." And Jesus said, "No, my hour hasn't yet come. You go. Your time. The time is ripe for you anytime." Okay. Well, Jesus' intention was that he wasn't going to go up to Jerusalem publicly because the previous time he had been, which is chapter five, he had healed uh, the man who had been um, handicapped for 38 years beside another pool, the pool of Bethesda. And in the process of healing this man, he 
uh, equated himself. He, well, he said that he was the son of God and they didn't like that because they thought that that meant he was equating himself with God. And so it said, uh, it says in chapter five that they sought to kill him. Now, Jesus says a lot of other very important things in chapter five. Um, he talks about how he has life in himself, that God has given him the ability to raise the dead, that God has given him the right to judge. Well, these are big statements and they didn't like these statements. So they were already uh, on, and this would be his second visit to Jerusalem. His first visit was in chapter two. In this second major visit to Jerusalem, they're already plotting to kill him. So he stays back in Galilee for about a year and ministers there. His brothers go up for the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus shows up in the middle of the feast. And on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up while they're performing this water ceremony. Remember, the water, and the, during the water ceremony, they went and they filled these beautiful uh, gold vessels with water from the pool of Siloam. The same pool, okay? And they brought them to the steps of the temple and they poured them out on the steps. And it was kind of a, a ceremony that, was, in, was intended to demonstrate that God supplied water to the children of Israel while they were in the desert. But it was also kind of a, a prayer for water. And there was no irrigation system in Israel. They relied on the rain. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a memorial feast about God's provision for the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness. But it was also a harvest festival and a time of thanking God for the ingathering of all of the harvest throughout the year. And so in the process of that, um, because they're an agricultural culture uh, community, uh, water was essential. Water is essential for all of us, but obviously if your crops aren't watered, then you don't have food, you don't have anything. Um, Jesus stands up and, <clears throat> while they're doing performing that ceremony and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Moses supplied water from the rock, not Moses, but God through Moses, right? Um, he struck the rock the first time. The second time he was supposed to speak to the rock and he struck it again and that got him in trouble with God. But nonetheless, water flowed out of the rock. But Jesus said, no, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And then water flowed out of that rock. He said, <clears throat> living water will flow from your innermost being. And then John interprets that for us and helps us to understand that the water that Jesus is talking about is a symbol for the Holy Spirit, right? So that's John 7, 37 and 38. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles, right? There's controversy about the things that Jesus says. And then we have the story of the woman caught in adultery that is inserted right there, uh, there's a segue verse at the end of chapter seven and then chapter eight verses one through 12 is the woman caught in adultery, which is not <clears throat> something John wrote. Now, if you want to hear about that in more detail, um, I talked about it uh, when I taught in that section. Uh, I did preach on the story. I believe that the story is something that Jesus actually did, but it was an independently circulating story and the church didn't really quite know where to put it because none of the synoptic writers had included it and John hadn't included it, but 
they wanted to include it. So it's found in different places, uh, in several different places in John. It's also found in a couple of different places in Luke, not in the original manuscripts. Well, we don't have the original manuscripts, but not in any early manuscripts, which would be closer to the original manuscripts. So we know that they were trying to find a place to preserve this story, okay? Um, so it winds up at the beginning of John. Why do I say that here? Because it really kind of interrupts the flow of where Jesus is, okay? Now, theologically, it fits, and providentially, God included it there um, because Jesus talks about uh, he did not come at this time to judge. He came to save the world, right? And so it's an illustration of that. But what we need to do is we need to jump from John 7, 57 and 58, where Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, all the way down to John 8, 12. I said it was 8, 1 through 12. It's actually 8, 1 through 11 is the woman caught in adultery. 8, 12 is where John takes up again. 8, 12 should really be 8, 1, in other words. And... That's where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness, right? So then he upsets the Pharisees, but others want to believe in him. And he tells them if they continue in his word, then they're really his disciples. And then they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free. Well, then they become offended. They're like, well, we're not slaves. What are you saying? We'll become free. Well, Jesus is talking about slavery to sin. And we're all uh, enslaved to sin and in need of being set free. So it gets in this huge debate with them and that takes up the rest of chapter eight. Remember, he's still in the temple grounds and this is still during the period of the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's a lot of material that is in that same time frame. okay? So we get all the way here <clears throat> to chapter nine, and it's still right here at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's still a lot of people in Jerusalem because it's a pilgrimage feast, okay? This also helps us to understand why Jesus could just kind of disappear in the crowd. Um, you need to be around a community of people who have a, uh, a similar um, racial uh, background, okay? So if you go to France and you're among the French, if you go to England and you're among the Brits, now they, all of these countries have had a lot of people move in from the Middle East and so forth, so they've become more melting pots like we are. But people who are, are racially similar look similar, right? They have the same color hair. They have the same color skin. You know, the men are approximately the same size and so forth. So it's really pretty easy to get lost in the crowd. And if you consider <clears throat> that they didn't have a lot of diversity in their dress, then it would <clears throat> be very understandable that Jesus, who's just <clears throat> another bearded <clears throat> Jew among many Jews, could just fade into the crowd, right? And so he's walking out <clears throat> outside. He encounters this man who is born blind, okay? Um, the disciples asked him why the man was blind. They'd been taught, and obviously the Pharisees believed this uh, when we look at the end of this chapter, uh, or really not quite the end, but when they, when they throw this man out of the, the synagogue, the Pharisees say, you were born entirely in sins. Well, why did they, they think they knew that or believed that? Well, because he was born blind, these people believed, and some people today still believe, 
that if you have some sort of a serious physical infirmity or handicap, then maybe there was something wrong along the family line, okay? Maybe there's, you know, some sin or curse or something. This is very superstitious and not biblical, but nonetheless, there are people that believe this. Well, in this time period, they believed that if someone had a serious handicap like this, that it was either because they sinned or because they were inheriting uh, the, uh, the negative consequences of their parents' sins. Well, Jesus debunks that entire idea, all right? Um, he went on to state that God had a purpose for this man's blindness. What was the purpose? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I've talked to um, people uh, about... Um, you know, issues with their children, um, you know, with their children who are struggling with a variety of infirmities or illnesses or afflictions. And there can be a tendency even among them to think, well, you know, is this something that is evil? Is this something that's demonic? Is this, you know, uh, and I would say, to them and have said to them, as I would say to you, if you're dealing with a particular affliction, you can bring stuff on by through sin, okay? There are natural consequences for stupid things that we do, you know, when we abuse our bodies and when we, you know, use substances and all these different things. And yeah, you do bring things on yourself in that way. Further, when you put yourself at risk with sinful behaviors, uh, then you bring all sorts of negative consequences on yourself, all right? But there's not a one-to-one correlation between affliction or infirmity and sin. Now, here's the, the uh, contrast. The man who was handicapped at the pool of Bethesda apparently struggled with some sort of sin that was part of the cause of his affliction because Jesus says to that man, now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Oh, wow. So it is possible for sin to bring sickness on you, right? But it is not uh, a correlation that because someone is sick or struggling with an infirmity that there is sin there. What we can say is what Jesus says about this man for anybody, that when you work through these things in the will of God, then you see that God had a purpose for either allowing this or for causing this in your life, okay? So if you're struggling through something, um, consider the statement that Jesus said uh, or made about this man who was born blind. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him, all right? Why is this happening, Lord? so that the works of God may be displayed in you, all right? God has a purpose for you too, whatever your physical challenges may be. He may heal you like he did with this man, or he may sustain you and work in your life through the weakness or the handicap. The apostle Paul had a physical infirmity, which may well have been a problem with his eyesight due to his Damascus Road encounter. Uh, Remember, he had the blinding light, which was his vision of Jesus. Um, It is supposition. We don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, but some Bible interpreters have thought that that's what it was. The apostle Paul prayed that the Lord would heal him. He said he prayed three times. Um, 
And he prayed that the Lord would take away what he called his thorn in the flesh. But God had other plans. Christ spoke to Paul and said this, my grace is sufficient for you. What does sufficient mean? Give me a synonym for that. It's enough. My grace is enough for you because my power is perfected in weakness. His power is not perfected in your ability, your strength, your natural talent. It is perfect. His power is perfected in your weakness. So Paul says he gladly accepted his physical challenge and even boasted about it. It kept him humble and it kept him dependent upon the Lord. Um, I'm going to tell the story. I haven't told the story in a long time. Um, before <clears throat> I went to Baylor University, um, actually this might've been, so I went to Baylor, I got my degree, I graduated, I went back to Phoenix, Arizona, and I thought I was going to, um, put off going into ministry for a while. And uh, so, um, I did put off going into ministry for a while and I thought I was going to teach. I thought, you know what? I could teach high school. So I entered into the teacher's training program at uh, what is now Grand Canyon University. And I can't remember if this young man that I'm about to tell you about uh, was a part of my life before I went to Baylor because I started at Grand Canyon, then transferred to Baylor, got my degree from Baylor, then came back to Grand Canyon. But I can't remember if he was there before or after. But the young man's name was Ralph Buss. And uh, he was he was our age. He was a college age student. So, you know, between 19 and 21. In fact, the more I think about it, I, I do know this was before I went to Baylor. This was, in fact, this happened my sophomore year in college, which was my last year at Grand Canyon. Anyway, um, but this young man's name was Ralph Buss. So I was, well, what was I then? Like eight, 19, I guess, at that point. And- Ralph Buss was uh, about the size of a nine-year-old boy. He had severe arthritis. Okay, now some people develop arthritis as they get older. Um, he was born with a severe case of arthritis and he dealt with it his entire life. Now we're on the second floor, okay? This arthritis is obvious in all of his joints. You can see it in his elbows, um, and when he would wear shorts, you can see it in his knees. These joints are just really, really inflamed. Um, nonetheless, he didn't have a problem, you know, dealing with the struggle and the challenge, okay? He went up and down the stairs just like all the rest of us. But it would take Ralph Buss about an hour to get out of bed in the morning. That's how long it would take him to work his joints so that they would be fluid enough so he could get up and walk, now, he was a strong Christian young man. Um, and, you know, I was dealing with the, this issue and I thought, I, I, you know, I wonder, I wonder what he thinks or what he feels about his, you know, infirmity, his affliction. So I asked him. In fact, I asked him a, a question point blank. I said, Ralph, I said, do you think you would have the kind of relationship that you have with God right now if you didn't have this disease? And his answer was no. He really thought that this was what um, God used 
to drive him closer to the Lord. So he's an example of someone who agreed with the Apostle Paul here and saw that God was working in his life, not in spite of his affliction, but through his affliction. Now, I can tell you of other people that I know who have um, physical handicaps who would tell you the same thing, okay? Um, But it takes faith, and uh, we need to see that God is working in spite of all of these things, all right? Then we need to consider Job, Um, like Job, you can draw nearer to God and see him in a way that you would or could not apart from all that you've gone through. So the the book of Job is really very long, but if you want to get the gist of Job, you want to understand the, the theme of Job, you can read the first two chapters and the last three or four chapters and you'll understand what's going on there. It's Hebrew poetry and there's a lot that's going on there. But essentially, Job has everything taken away from him and it just appears really weird and mean on the part of God. There's kind of like, almost like a bet between God and the devil, God and Satan. And Satan is allowed to afflict Job. Initially, Satan is allowed to take away all of his material blessings, even take away his children. All of his children are killed. So he's absolutely destitute. He has nothing but but his wife and his health, but he refuses to curse God, Right? So Satan returns and God says, well, what do you think of my servant Job? Even though you incited him against me, he still won't curse me. And so Satan says, skin for skin, let me take his health from him and he'll curse you to your face. So Satan was allowed to afflict him with these boils, these running sores, super nasty, okay? Um, And even Job's wife comes up to him this is, you know, a wonderful helpmate here. She comes up to him and she says, curse God and die. <laughs> and Job says, you know, should we not, uh, we accept good things from God? Should we not accept bad things? Well, you might think that Job is just super holy and never complained about this, but really the rest of the book of Job is nothing but Job complaining about how unjust God is in doing these things. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you've done the right things and followed the right path. And, you know, you're still having to deal with some sort of injustice or affliction or whatever. But we see the reason for all this and how it fits into what I'm saying with the man born blind, right? This happened to this man that the works of God might be seen in him. This happened to Job that his eyes might be opened and he might see God in a way that he could not before he was afflicted right? When we're healthy, wealthy, and wise, we're not apt to seek God. We might be obedient. We might be good people, right? But we're not really inclined to seek God or be near God. Now, that's not to say you can't or people don't. I'm just saying that uh, it is not something that is the norm, okay? Here was Job's response. After all of his complaining, God confronted him and he answered him personally. That is, God answered Job personally. And the answer was a series of questions poised to prove that God is the sovereign creator of all and does what he pleases. That's what sovereign means. Okay, this is why you need to 
you need to fear God. God's not afraid of your questions, but you need to fear God because God is sovereign and can literally do whatever he wants to do. Well, I'm trusting God's goodness and God's love, but I do know that God is all powerful. And if you don't fear God, then you're the fool. That's why the scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So God makes this clear to Job from Job 38 through 40. Job's response to all of God's questions, where were you when I, you know, when I did all of these things? Where were you when I created all this? You know so much, tell me, right? You've got so much on the ball, Job, you really, really seem to think that you're in the place to judge me. Where were you when I created all this, right? You don't know anything, Job. And Job realized that this was the case. And his response is great. This is a quote. Job 42, 5, and 6. This is the whole point to God's afflicting Job. Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. He was a good man. He did all the right things, right? He knew of God, but he knew of God at an arm's length, okay? Maybe not even arm's length. I'd heard about you, God. I knew you were out there somewhere, and I feared you, okay? I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. That means he retracts all of his complaints. And I repent sitting in dust and ashes. So God restored Job. He restored everything back to Job. He restored his health. And in fact, Job had three friends that continually accused him for days on end. And God was not happy with them. Job had to pray for them, right? So there's, there's something tying all this together, right? Um, the Apostle Paul's affliction might have been uh, uh, the inability to see clearly some sort of a, a problem with his eyesight. Um, here we have a man born blind. Here's the situation with Job, and he says, now my eye sees you. The healing of the man born blind is symbolic of spiritual sight, okay? So... What I think the the message I would like for you to get out of this is that what you're going through is giving you insight that you would not and could not have if you didn't go through it with the Lord. Now, you can just let it all hit you and run all over you and ruin you. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there is a reason for what you're going through. And it is that the works of God may be accomplished in you. But you got to let him accomplish those works. Right? I'm like Job, man. I'm complaining. I'm complaining that we don't have any air up there still. You know, I've had these people out and out and out and out fixing this air conditioning. And it's just, it's exhausting, frankly. You know, it's like, I don't know who to call anymore. So I call the same guy to come out. And, you know, that's minor, man. You may be healing, dealing with some major physical challenges and so forth. I'm just saying I'm complaining. But I don't have any reason to complain because God is good. And he is the God that takes everything that we're going through and works it out for our good and his glory. Amen? All things work together for the good. Of anybody? No. All things work together for the good of those who what? Love God and what? 
are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to make you more like Jesus. When you suffer, you identify with the suffering servant, who is Jesus. Now, I'm not just saying, you know, I want you to suffer more and all of these sorts of things. But what I am saying is that we need to get off this, this idea um, or get away from this idea that says, well, God doesn't care. That's why I'm going through all this. You may be going through all this because God does care. And he's trying to draw you closer to him, right? All right, so, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the verse or phrase from the famous uh, hymn, Amazing Grace, fits here. I once was blind, but what? But now I see. Jesus gives spiritual sight to all who will come to him in faith. The healing of the man born blind here is symbolic of that reality. All right, so Jesus says this in our, uh, this first little passage. Um, Jesus has passed by, um, and then he says, after he says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but so the works of God might be displayed in him. Then Jesus says, we must carry out the works of him who sent me. Who's that? Who's the works of him who sent Jesus? The father, okay? We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Well, Jesus already said that, right? In John 8, 12. Um, the night that was coming, he said night is coming when no one can work, would be when Satan had his season, had his time, when the power of darkness reigned. And that happened as Jesus came into his hour of suffering. Remember all through John, Jesus is saying, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. And as we've already seen on Sunday morning, because we were, we're past uh, where we are now on Sunday morning, when we come to John chapter 12 and Jesus goes into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry, then he says, now my hour has come. Now he was entering into that time when he would suffer on, uh, suffer through and suffer on the cross for our sins uh, and then would die and then be raised. So during that time of suffering, then this time of darkness, right, uh, reigned for that brief period of time. The will of God and our redemption was accomplished by the Lord going through this suffering, but it appeared for a short while that they had put out the light of the world. I mean, they all saw Jesus beaten and bearing his own cross, right? Jesus was taken dead off of that cross and he was literally dead. And they put him in a tomb. What would you think? That's darkness. That's the darkest darkness, right? We see this idea uh, introduced in John in the upper room. So uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet in chapter 13. He tells them that one of them will betray him. Peter reaches over and asks John, John who is the youngest disciple and probably the closest to Jesus and physically was the closest to Jesus, like he was literally 
this is John now, the writer of our gospel, was literally so close to Jesus that he could just lay his head back on Jesus' chest. Now, you've got to remember how they ate, right? They're around the Last Supper table, but they weren't sitting in chairs like this, eating, okay? They reclined. The table was low, and they're, let's, let's assume this is the table here, okay? And there's no chair, right? There's, a, there's like a mat or a cushion that you kind of put your derriere on, and then you kick your feet out away from the table, and you lean on an elbow here. Here's the table, here's the food. You lean on an elbow here, and you eat, okay? There's another person here, and there's another person here, okay? Peter is somewhere, okay? But John, here's Jesus, here's John, okay? John could literally lay his head back on Jesus' chest and look up into his eyes. And that's what he did. Peter said, ask him who he means. John was very familiar with Jesus in the best sort of way and leaned back, looked up in his eyes and said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it is the one who after I have dipped this bread in the, the bitter herb sauce and passed it to him, eats it. Okay, now I should have brought this up when we were in John 13 and I will once we get there uh, on Wednesday, but that was more than just a, a, a signal, you know, hey, John, watch that, I'll signal you, it's this, it's that guy right there, okay. Judas may well have been over here. He was, Judas was close enough for Jesus to just hand this to him, Okay. Now, maybe he wasn't right here, but he was close. This was actually uh, a practice in the Middle East that um, symbolized friendship. It was called offering the sop. So when you dipped bread in whatever the, you know, the sauce was, okay, the dipping, uh, you know, there's some sort of butter or in this case, it was bitter herbs and you offered that to that person, when they received it, they were accepting your offer of friendship. Do you realize what Judas did? Jesus offered that to him, and in so doing, you know, there's kind of this just weird thinking that, you know, Judas was sort of fated to do this, and, you know, he didn't really have any choice. It's a bunch of nonsense, Okay. And Jesus said that, you know, the son of man is going to go, but woe to that one through whom, you know, he is, he's taken away. It would be better for him if he'd never been born. Judas made up his mind. He made his own decision. God, the devil, nobody else made him do what he did. He chose it. But because he chose it, watch. Jesus says, now this is the signal, right? John now knows but Jesus is saying to Judas, you don't have to do this. You ready for that? I am your friend and you don't have to betray your friend. And Judas just went, in John's gospel, it says, at that moment, Satan entered into Judas. Now, you know, we 
talk a lot about Satan doing this and Satan doing that. Here's the reality. Satan's not God. Amen? Satan is not omniscient. What does that mean? Yeah, he doesn't know everything. Okay? Satan is not omnipresent. What does that mean? Yeah, he's not everywhere. Now, somebody says, man, the devil's in this room. I doubt it. I don't think you're that important. I'm not being disrespectful, okay? If you're the devil, who are you going to possess? Whoever the most important figure in the world is at that point for you to control everything you want to control, okay? Now, when Satan fell from heaven, he took a third of the angels of heaven with him. Those angels we call what? Demons. Daimon, right? Uh, Daimon is like a demigod, right? Because they think they're gods. Well, they do Satan's bidding. So that's not to say that, you know, one of these fallen angels couldn't be oppressing, you know, you or be present or whatever. But Satan, no. But I, I just want you to see how important this is. Satan himself possessed Judas. That's just so deeply disturbing. But it also tells us how dark the darkness had become, right? So here's a series of events. Who's he talking about? Peter says to John. John leans back. Who is it, Lord? Jesus dips the sop, offers it to Judas. Judas takes it. It says, and Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said to, to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And Judas got up from the table and left. They didn't know what this meant or who this was. Uh, Judas was the treasurer. They thought that maybe he's supposed to go out and give some money to the poor or something like that or buy some supplies, whatever. They had no idea what was going on, right? When Judas left the room, it's very interesting. John's gospel says, and it was night. Wow. Now, in a purely empirical sense, that means that the sun had gone down completely and it was dark. But true to John's theological purpose, that means more than, hey, the sun just went down, right? That means that the hour of darkness had come. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, okay? Um, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he gets arrested, he tells them, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So this is the darkness, the initial darkness that Jesus is talking about. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world, all right? Darkness also occurs in any period of unbelief among people. That can happen in a church, that can happen in a nation, that can happen in any group of people, any community of people, large or small. Where Jesus is absent, darkness reigns. I'll say that again. Where Jesus is absent, darkness reigns. Remember, these people that he's talking to are very religious, they're very moral. They do a lot of things that they believe are right, and yet darkness reigns among them, okay? There is spiritual darkness, for example, in every communist or socialist nation. 
and not because of its economic system, but because of enforced atheism. Okay, socialism, communism is at its root Marxism. Karl Marx said, what blank is the opiate of the people? What? Religion. Marx saw religion as a crutch. It stole people's um, willingness to fight for economic freedom or however you want to look at what Marx's goal was, okay? Um, in every nation where communism or socialism reigns, the government is who people put their hope in. The government is in control. This is exactly what Jesus stole from the Roman Empire. People put their hope in God. They put their hope in Jesus. They put their hope in eternal life. Marx was an atheist. He wanted everybody to be atheists. This is why when the Bolshevik Revolution happened, they murdered as many Orthodox priests as they could find. There are graves of Orthodox priests all the way along the perimeter of St. Petersburg. They murdered them all. This happens in every Marxist revolution. They kill all of the people who are religious or religious leaders because they don't want that. They believe it's a false hope, okay? It takes away their power to manipulate people. Why am I bringing this in? You're like, oh man, this, what are we doing this lesson in this? Or you're trying to be a capitalist or a conservative? What? No, I'm not talking about economics. I'm talking about atheism and the darkness that comes as the result of disbelief in Jesus. When formerly Christian nations kick God out of the equation, darkness reigns. Right? Look at North Korea. That's about as dark as you can get. Right? Communist China. The Chinese Communist Party still has a stranglehold uh, on that great nation. And they're seeking to have a stranglehold on the rest of the world. Um, they're having a significant influence in our country because of the educational system. Right? But the first thing that Marxists want to do is remove God from the equation. And darkness then reigns. However, God is still at work even when man cannot accomplish anything. So uh, there are a lot of Christians in China today. Now, North Korea is the hermit nation. There, there's so little communication that goes in and out of North Korea, it's difficult to assess uh, how many Christians there might be there. Okay, But in spite of the fact that the government is very strongly controls uh, the church. They allow there to be Christian churches in China. They would even say that they're free. Um, they're really not free. They have one church that is permitted there and they have to, you have to pledge allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party in church. Okay. <clears throat> I've told you this before, but in keeping with uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Remember that story, right? I just told you that it wasn't originally in John, but it's an authentic story, right? But do you remember what happened in the story, right? The woman is dragged in front of Jesus. She was caught in the very act of adultery. These are disgusting, disturbing people if they were looking out for that, okay? This is probably her husband telling them, yeah, this is going on. I'll tell you when it goes on. I want you to catch her. 
and they saw an opportunity. So they caught her in the act. They dragged her probably half clothed in front of Jesus, threw her down and said, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law says to stone such a person. What do you say? They're trying to trap him. Jesus bends down and writes on the ground. He refuses to be a witness. And then he looks up and he says, let the one among you who has no sin throw the first stone. Well, all of them were honest enough to realize that they weren't free of sin. So they left one at a time, beginning with the oldest, until the only person left there was Jesus. And then he stood up and looked around and he said, woman, where are your accusers? She says, you know, is anyone left to accuse you? She says, no one, Lord. Well, there's no witness then to testify against her. So he says, then neither do I accuse you. And he sends her away. He says, go your way and sin no more. Okay. The Chinese Communist Party changed that story. They're rewriting the Bible. They changed the story. Do you know what Jesus does in their version of the story? He has them stone the woman. Sound like Jesus to you? These are some extremely perverse, wicked, evil people. Okay? Darkness reigns when Jesus is absent. And when you redefine Jesus... That's not Jesus anymore. The Chinese Communist Party, having redefined Jesus as this legalist who would have the woman stoned to death, that's not Jesus, and that's darkness. But God is still at work, even in the midst of spiritual darkness. When he had said this, okay, so he said all of these things. He said, you know, night is coming when no one can work. But while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's just said that. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And then he brings light into this man's life. When he said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Uh, And then John interprets the Aramaic word for us or the Hebrew word for us and says, which means sent. So he left, that is the blind man left, washed and came back seeing. Jesus worked in order to heal this man. The man had to cooperate with Jesus by going to the pool of Siloam to wash the miraculous mud from his eyes. This wasn't a magic pool. It wouldn't have healed his eyes if he'd have just gone there on his own and washed his face, okay? Had Jesus not anointed his eyes with mud and sent him to the pool called Scent, the water would have had no effect. Siloam was the pool from which the water was drawn for that special ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember when I started the Bible study, I reminded you that when Jesus appeared in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was during that water ceremony where they poured the water out on the steps and he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. The water that Jesus 
was speaking this over or, you know, while, while it was being poured out, had come from this same pool. The pool was just outside the temple grounds. Now, I downloaded a couple of pictures of the excavation of the pool because they, they found it in 2004, and it's been partially excavated. But sadly, I got behind and I didn't put them up there. So I'll try to remember to put them up there for you next week. They're on this computer. I need to transfer them to that computer and so on and so forth. All right. But nonetheless, what I want you to see here is that faith results in action, cooperation with God, obedience. You can say you believe, but that doesn't mean anything. You do what you believe not what you say you believe, okay? A lot of us think we believe certain things, but we, we don't really do anything about it. You do what you believe, right? This man had enough faith in Jesus. He's still blind. He heard Jesus spitting on the ground. That's kind of gross, honestly, okay? And Jesus wipes this mud in his eyes. Now, I played the video uh, of this from the Gospel of John movie, and it really is good, the way they did it, the way the, the man kind of flinched when Jesus did this. It's so awesome. I want to see if, um, if uh, the, chosen of the, the, the Chosen series does this, because I bet he'll do a good job. But nonetheless, when the guy was obedient when he cooperated with Jesus, when he did what he was told, what happened? He was healed. What's stopping God from moving in your life? It might be you. All right? So faith results in deeds. As Jesus' half-brother James, who became the first pastor of the Jerusalem church and who wrote the book uh, that is named James, as he said, faith without works is dead. So have a faith that works, not an alleged faith that doesn't work. All right? That's where we're in today. Thank you for joining us online. God bless you.